Welcome to Studies in Torah. This is our follow-up podcast from our sessions on Monday nights. I'm David Gordon. I'm here with David Rickman, and we want to help address some things that um, we didn't either, either we didn't get to on Monday evenings or things that we feel like need to be uh, more greatly addressed. So one of the questions you guys may remember, and some of you laughed, uh, Monday night I was uh, addressed by my wife many times over the years, why does it matter? And so things like the cosmic waters or, you know, it, 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 there are other gods. And so when you get some of these big uh, biblical or kind of theological things, it becomes, as you know, uh, studying the scriptures. Uh, sometimes it can kind of stay out there in uh, motherland or it, it, it can stay out there in a way that we don't move it to a practical. And so <clears throat> it's really important that we understand the field of play. Uh, David and I were just sitting here talking. And um, for instance, I, I grew up playing sports. Many of you probably did. You don't want to be a basketball player, uh, you know, trying to play on a football field. You don't want to be, you know, you, you're a tennis ace and um, you, you know, are, are being uh, addressed to play soccer. You know, so we want to have the right players and the right field in mind. And so one of the ways to understand this is that if you were to break down the scriptures into just like, uh, we, would, we would call it the big three uh, concerning biblical worldview. You would have in the origins, in the beginning, as we discussed Monday night, cosmology. Um, which is the origin, the nature, and the structure of the heavens and the earth. And we, we, we just know that if we can work through Genesis 1 to working through up through Genesis 11 and get this right origin of the story, it will then rightly set in context uh, the next piece, which is soteriology. I know we know these are big terms, but soteriology basically is the salvation and the redemption of mankind. And how does God begin the soteriology piece as we pick it up like in Genesis 12 with the Jewish narrative, right? Mm -hmm. And if we don't have cosmology and the origins correct, uh, then our soteriology will be amok, right? It will, it will, it will, it will. Uh, at some point break down like for instance if you are off an inch on your foundation when you're building a house or you're off an inch uh, on a a wall or or a ceiling at some point as you move toward the finishing of the project it's going to just you know the house is going to break down it's not going to be right it would be like having a crack in the foundation and so a cosmology origins soteriology, the redemption and the salvation of mankind unto its, quote, its eschatological end, eschatology, which is the study of the time of the end. Our, again, our soteriology and our eschatology will be just way off and we'll miss the picture that, uh, and the story that God is telling if our 
again, our cosmology is is off-centered. This is why David and I are addressing this class, and we feel like it's really crucial to get these origin pieces into their right place so then that we can rightly interpret soteriology and eschatology going forward. So, Dave, uh, coming out of uh, Genesis 1, uh, we, we were just discussing some things that uh, we think are important to continue to follow up with related to the heavens and the earth. And so, man, I, I just uh, want to pitch it your way. Uh, as we look at, uh, you began to address this issue of uh, chaos to order. And, man, what what's going on there? Any background from you, anything I've just said? But as we move forward to looking afresh at Genesis 1, the heavens and the earth, give us some background to this this chaos to order idea. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think it's really important for us to, to understand that, you know, Genesis is, uh, is within a context. The, the book is set within, uh, within a context in a world, uh, and a culture. And so, uh, we'll reference it and you'll see it referenced of the ancient Near East. And so, it's really important to understand that it's not just a, a a clinical treatment of origins that's totally disconnected from the culture that it's set within. And so, um, throughout Genesis, especially throughout these these uh, initial chapters, there are uh, ways that that Genesis is referencing things that that existed even in other ancient Near Eastern stories that, that existed about the beginnings. And they had their own narratives about how things came about with, you know, creation and, and with uh, the beginnings of humanity and, and the gods and all of these things. But Genesis has its own take. And actually it has its own uh, even uh, like subtle and, but real criticisms of some of those ideas in the text. And, and a lot of that is uh, really good for us to know that that's going on, um, to see the uniqueness of the story of the God of Israel and what he's setting forth in these beginning chapters. And so um, obviously in the beginning, I mean, David went through this. Uh, we, we worked through this the other night <clears throat> um, that Really, you have the beginning of the earth being formless and void, darkness and this this wasteland emptiness and of of chaos and the waters. And what what happens with this is God begins to bring order to this. God begins to speak and he begins to to create and, and bring order to chaos and darkness and uh, through this, these narratives of what's going on with creation, um, there are references to these, like I mentioned earlier, subtle references to contexts in the ancient Near East. And we're not going to really go into those in, in this session. But um, j- just for example, we'll, we'll do a few of them here. And I think it's important to point out things like when God makes the the lights in the expanse of the heavens what, in, what in, verse are you in Dave? Uh, i'm in verse 14 um 
So when he makes the, the lights in the expanse and, and he says uh, in, in 16, he says, God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. And so it, it's kind of interesting because like he even uses the, the language of great lights versus using just sun and moon. I mean, like, why not just, just say, you know, the equivalent of, of that because yeah. that was there. But, um, actually there were in other ancient Near Eastern cultures, the sun and the moon were astral like deities that were worshiped. And, and the fact that even using the language here is, is helpful to see the, the counterculture view of Genesis. But also what you see is that Yahweh made it. And if as creator, if he makes something, then that means that that something is not on his level. You know, he's unique in unique. his in his power and in his uh, by virtue of being the one who made all things. And so um, I know this is something that we know, but 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 the way that Genesis tells the story would would really cause ancient Near Eastern readers or, you know, hearers of the story for their ears to kind of perk up and mm -hmm. say, whoa, like uh, I my narrative about this thing would be totally different, you know? And another example would be like for in verse 21, um, on the day when God, he makes every living creature that moves. But before he says that, he says, God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves. And so it's like, why not just, why, why, why take the time to talk about sea monsters as a classification among all these other creatures. Like, why do you even bring that up? It's like, and God made, you know, it's like saying like, and God made the lion and the lemur, mm -hmm. you know, or something among all these other animals. And the, the reason why he highlights the, this thing is because uh, the great sea monster, monsters were a big element within like pagan mythology of the ancient Near East, that, that there were these uh, ancient great monsters. And we even see this come up in the Hebrew scriptures, other places. And we're not going to get into that, but like um, we see that, that these, these creatures were, were seen as like divine or being involved in, in the creation themselves. And the fact that, that Yahweh created them, it strips them of their unique power. Mm -hmm. It's that Yahweh is unique in as the creator over everything. And so we just see that over and over um, in the creation narrative of his uniqueness. So not they were not only gods connected to the the lights in the skies, as we know, lesser, greater light, sun and moon, but also gods coming out of the sea in the earth. Yes. These were all commonly understood in the ancient Near East as gods and their connection to the creation, right? And their worship, literally, the, those individuals, you know, in the, the pagans are worshiping the gods, mm -hmm. okay? So it, I, I think about that, and uh, what does that look like when an, in, when an individual faces, you know, maybe for the first time, oh, my goodness, Yahweh trumps my God. What does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, so good.
So, David, uh, just any other thing in connection to that, what I just said, uh, what happens with this term, the uniqueness of Yahweh in regards to the other gods, in regards to maybe even creation? Anything else you want to say about this piece related to his uniqueness? Yeah, I think that we could could talk about this uniqueness even with moving into what what we looked at with... The pronouncements when you have these kind of strange pronouncements, especially with the creation of man right off the get go of let us make man in our image. And it's like, well, who's the us and and what's going on there? And we talked about um, the other night, David brought brought up the 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 framework of that. There are these other divine beings, these other entities that 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 Yahweh made. But he is addressing them in in these instances. But what what's important to remember r- related to uniqueness? We could talk some more about about yeah. these entities. But what's what's really important about the uniqueness is that um, there is the pronouncement of "Let us do this thing." Um, he'll he'll speak it to a a group, but then what happens, the action that follows is always done by Yahweh. Singular. Singular. Mm-hmm. And so he, he'll say, let us do this, and then he creates. Or let us do this, and he drives them out of the garden. And these other you know references. And so it's, it's very clear that who's in charge and who oh. has the power and who is actually presiding uniquely over these other entities, there's no confusion about that, of what's going on. And and that is very in contrast to, again, even these other ancient Near Eastern narratives where the gods are jockeying for positions and power and, and, you know, there's multiple gods doing this and whatever. And, and so, uh, so it really lays out the, the biblical framework of, of Yahweh as supreme overall. I love that, David. I, I want to read this passage that we did not get to the other night from Psalm 89, but it, it explains exactly what David just mentioned. Psalm 89, verses 5 through 8. And the heavens will praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. This is the assembly of the divine council of other gods. Verse 6, for who in the skies is comparable to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh? That, that Yahweh has divine sons called the sons of God. And we're going to pick this up in uh, future sessions. Verse uh, 7, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones. So it's very clear here that Yahweh is the one greatly feared in the midst of the council of other created divine beings. I love this part as well in verse 7. And awesome above all those who are around him. O Yahweh Elohim, O Lord God of hosts, who is like you, O mighty Lord? Almighty Yahweh, your faithfulness also surrounds you. I think it's a great passage to just highlight what David was just was just speaking of. Yeah. 
So David, going back to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, I, I think it's good. You began to, to, to uh, allude to this, but we have uh, God. Uh, it says, let, let uh, then God, Elohim, it's always plural in the Hebrew Bible, but God, Elohim said, let us make man in our image. And then it turns and it's singular, but Elohim created singular. He created the heavens and the earth. David, if you could talk just a little more around this, this maybe this us, plural and singular thing, and, and what's going on here in terms, because we're going to see this term us show up several other times. It's going to show up in Genesis 3.22. It's going to show up in Genesis 11.7. And I know we're going to deal with this in the future, but I think it's good. Again, we get this understanding out of Genesis 1, so then we can rightly interpret 3.22.11.7. Anything you want to speak to related to that, that will help us understand. Again, Genesis 1.26 is not a what we would say a Trinitarian concept. It's not the Trinity there. It's God, Elohim. It's Yahweh Elohim. He is making this declaration in the midst of his divine counsel, the us. Okay. And what, what, what does that look, give a little more background here if you can. And what does that mean in relation to man? Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, that, you know, as we, look at this this pronouncement in his counsel i think that it's reflective of, of really of what the the design of man is and their and their role and function and so similarly to uh those in the council that he's speaking to these these sons of god that exist that are gathered and to hear the pronouncement um, they've been given authority, like what you you kind of laid out, David, um, on Monday, is that these these other entities were actually given authority and they're given uh, their own stewardship, but the, in, the, in their own domain yeah, as well, exactly. right? Okay, it, it, it's within their own you know setting, which is really the the heavens and and how that works itself out. They have their their area, so to speak, you know, and then man is given his area of stewardship and really rule. And that, that's in the what, earth. Yeah. In the earth. And so th this is kind of the two uh, regions of between man is given the earth and, and these sons of God are given the heavens and they're, they're both going to be held accountable for, their stewardship over those regions. And so um, I think that we could talk a little bit more about the, the image and uh, things like this uh, in just a few minutes. But I think that that kind of sets the stage for what's going on in the address to this council of what, uh, you know, Yahweh is doing to address them. So, um, David, I don't know if we want to move all, move over into this. It may be a good place when uh, just to address this. I, I think it's really important because um, when you first come into the knowledge that there are other gods, mm -hmm. it's confrontive because we've always been taught what we know as monotheism. Yeah. 
uh, you know, a term that was actually derived from or developed in the 17th century. And so, um, like when we read passages, and I'm just going to read these two verses, David, and then I'll, and just ask you to, to to comment on them out of Deuteronomy four, uh, verse thirty five. To you it was shown, and and of course this is uh, Israel. To you, Israel, it was shown that you might know that Yahweh, He is Elohim. There is no other besides Him. Verse thirty nine again. Deuteronomy 4, 35, and then verse 39. Know, therefore, today, take it to heart, that Yahweh, he is Elohim, in heaven above and on earth below, there is no other. So, David, obviously, individuals would read passages like that, and they would begin to read this monotheistic understanding into those passages. might really be good to maybe just, just briefly share ancient uh, understanding of monotheism biblically versus maybe how it derived into the 17th century with a whole nother framework. It, it might just be good for you just to walk through that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think it's, I think it's important to, to see that, you know, for ancient cultures, all gods existed. And, and that was just, you know, all gods exist. It's they, common. It I mean, was, it was just, this is the way it is. Yeah. It's and, true. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's hard for us to, to really understand that kind of worldview because we're, we're living in this like post enlightenment, post modernism kind of thing of, of really the divine has kind of been removed from our framework. Excellent. And so we, we have this like totally kind of naturalistic world that doesn't have a, you know, this, this divine thing, those, those have kind of in, in society kind of been deleted out of, out of the uh, thing through, through so much history, you know, and, and the shifts of worldviews. And, but, um, for the ancients, it's like all gods existed. And, uh, in, with this framework, uh, I think it's important for us to, to really like step back and think about and you. And you brought this up, David, the, the other night is like, Think about the commandments that God gives mm-hmm. Israel through the scriptures and, and just the, the constant admonitions for them to to worship him versus exclusively. Yeah, versus these other gods. But it's like that doesn't even make any sense mm-hmm. if the if those beings don't really exist. You know, it's yes. like you shall have no other non entities before me. Yeah. It's like, what is that even like? What does that even mean? And so uh, we have to understand that that God's not just calling Israel to some higher degree of intellectual knowledge to understand that there is no other existences. You know what I mean? Yes. It, it really is a these other beings. He made them, you know, but those these other beings are actually attached to the nations of the earth. And we're going to look at how that happens later on in the class yes. that they, they're actually attached to and given authority to the related to other nations of the earth. But, but Yahweh is the God of Israel and, and why that carries forward and why exclusive worship is demanded of them. It's explicitly in this. And so, um, but I, but I think that this, this verse, I think, we can look at this one one example and and 
this is kind of a bigger subject than what we could cover in this. And, and we'll talk more about it in the class, but um, we have to understand sometimes the language of, of some of these things uh, is not meant to, to deny the existence of these other beings, but to emphasize exclusive worship. It's an emphasize um, exclusive devotion to the God of Israel. And so uh, the, these passages like, like the one you read in Deuteronomy 4, but also like in Isaiah through the string of Isaiah, you know, when he's like condemning the idolatry and all of this stuff, you'll get stuff like, I'm the Lord, there is no other, you know, yes. besides me, there is no God. And these, these references, um, these references are expressions of superiority. They are um, used as, as kind of like a, you know, a, it's kind of a silly way to say it, but it's almost like a divine trash talk, <laughs> you know, of like putting down these other entities um, in to try to advance like Israel worshiping him exclusively. And so uh, these phrases are used in other contexts and we see them as just being expressions of superiority. Like for instance, um, one of them is in Isaiah 47 verse eight, um, Babylon is talking about Babylon. And it says that they were saying to themselves, you're saying to yourself, I am, and there's none besides me. Now, it's like virtually the same type of phrase, phrasing of it. And nobody's saying that, you know, Babylon is the only uh, political <laughs> empire or, or nation in, in the day. And so it's just a, it's a superiority kind of thing. Or, or another one is in Zephaniah 2.15 about Nineveh, who, who says to herself, I am and there's none besides me. And so this is, this is language that is expressing that. And, and so it's not denying the existence of these other beings. And so we have to understand that monotheism um, is, for the ancients, was was like i guess we have to look at it as like monotheism as being qualified by for the ancients it didn't deny the existence of these other beings but but later monotheism kind of became known as that and we we really have that definition from the 17th century that we're trying to apply to ancient peoples and that's really hard to do it's hard to to take that and impose that upon the ancient peoples as the parameters for looking at what's going on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I, that's just a few thoughts to address that. And, and there's so much more we could talk about with, with idols and idolatry and, um, and these gods and how the nations worship them. And I think we'll, we'll kind of, you know, develop that more as we talk about things in the class. Yes. Yes. It is interesting. Yahweh after 430 years, he delivers Israel you know, from Egypt in the bondage. And then he calls them out of the gods of Egypt to himself. Mm -hmm. And you shall have no other gods before me, for I am the Lord, your Yahweh, that, that kind of thing. And again, you, we see this all through the Torah. It, it just really helps us to understand. Again, David, if we don't have this background of the other gods, the other Elohim, I mean, when you're just reading passages like, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. 
it just, like you said, it just makes no sense, you know. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you giving some background to uh, some backdrop to this monotheism idea because it's it's helpful that they were not denying other gods. Uh, it was an issue of exclusive worship of Yahweh, and this is what was going on. And so, um, anyway, David. So moving on. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else about that. I, I know we got more that we can share or put out. Um, David has a, a couple other good, really good articles. If any of you have interest in the this whole idea of monotheism and maybe even how um, the, the, it progressed over the centuries, there, there's some good background to understand what's going on. But I think the essence of what we just said is really helpful to understand. So. David, uh, continuing on with this, you know, it's Genesis 1, 26, 27. Yeah. Uh, man being made in the image of, not just that, that Yahweh uh, said to the, his counsel, let us make man in our image. Let's now move on to that, that being an imager of God. What does it mean that man is actually made in the image and uh, slash in the likeness of of Yahweh or in 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 the image and the likeness of the gods what does that look like from both a you know a divine is there something like being replicated in in men as a function the way you know it's happening even on a divine level yeah yeah i think that um i, I think that it's for us to to see this, first of all, is that image and likeness. I think that they're um, it's not necessarily two things. I think that it's kind of wrapped up together. Okay. So I don't I don't think that there's. I mean, you know, some people may try to really parse those out, you know. But I but I think that it's um, it, it connects as as just two ways of say, saying one thing. Um, but yeah, it is interesting because it doesn't actually take the you know in the passage here we don't even actually have the whole like let me explain to you what this image you know that whole thing and and really i think that the context we have to look at the context for what's going on uh to To define to to define that yeah i think that's the best way forward with it because a lot of times people approach this and and then you, you just start asking questions okay like, what does it mean? What's unique about man versus other creation? And and then we kind of develop all these different, like, you know, somewhat philosophical answers to to that. Or we talk about how is man, you know, what comprises man and man's, you know, spirit, soul, and body or what, you know, all these different kind of things. But, but that's not really like the, in the context here. I think that the the framework of it is, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule. Right after that, he just says, and let them rule over all of this creation. These these things in the creation. God made man in his own image, in the image of God he created in male and female. And then he blesses them, calls them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and and rule over and so I think that the the real context of it is the function of man is to be God's representatives in the earth of of his rule and and stewardship. And so they're they're giving this this stewardship to 
to carry out a role of subduing this this portion of creation that God is assigning them to. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that, that we have to look at it in that way. And the way that God really intends for man to do that is for man to do it like he would. You know, it's it's to be to to carry out this role and this function in a way of dependence, in a way like he is. And so we, we even see kind of similarly the uh the likeness idea uh in Genesis five, one through three, two, where there's this uh capacity for for the son of Adam to to be like his father, you know, and so I think that it kind of carries this this framework of of image likeness being functional, but also having the ability to to be like you know the one Yahweh that, in the area of representation. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and so I I think that it's not something that you know if we took categories like more philosophical categories of, you know, like consciousness or, or, uh, conscience or, or emotional being. Yeah. yeah. But then like the question, there's all kinds of questions that come up and this has been talked about is in, you know, people have debated this is like, well, what happens to human beings who are, or maybe less, uh, able in, in their, uh, consciousness or wow. or conscience or they have uh, disabilities or whatever does that mean that they're less of the image of God than That's other human beings insight. you know and like is there a gradation of it can we mm-hmm. could, you know and so I don't think that the, those kind of categories hold up to either the context or really to to it being consistent um, across the board and so um, it seems like the the context again is just this this function of of being given stewardship of the earth, and it's not something. It's something that's built into human identity. It's not something that uh, you know we just like take on or something. I, I think it's built into the very framework, and that's that same framework will be held accountable yes. in the future on the day of the Lord. The, the the issue of uh, stewardship is an issue of being given a, a, what what we would say delegated authority, mm-hmm. um, it, and it's it's an issue of dependency. Yeah. It's an issue of reliance, because now what we move let, let's move to this this last passage, David, and this again uh, for you podcast listeners. This is going to segue into session two that David will be coming back as we look, uh, as we move into Genesis 3 uh, next week uh, on Monday evening. But I, I just want to address this, David, um, and, and let's just close up our time in discussing this for a few moments. Genesis 2, verses 15 to 17. And um, if, if if you guys remember on Monday night, I was, I was talking about how God gave... Uh, the stewardship delegated authority for Adam to rule the earth, 
but he it's almost like a God will give you an assignment, but he'll always give you a test. And it's just interesting that God from Eden, from the garden, he desired Adam to steward. The garden in light of future stewardship of the earth as, you know, they began to multiply. But Adam failing in the garden, this is this begins to create the the fall, the problem that we begin to see in Genesis 3. But I just want to read this passage, Genesis 2, 15. Then Yahweh Elohim took man, put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it, to to steward it, to manage it, to serve and to guard the garden. Then Yahweh Elohim commanded Adam or the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. And so one of the things David and I were discussing earlier, and we'll begin to just bring things to a close with this, is that um, God gives man authority. Not only does he give divine the divine beings delegate authority of the heavens, but human beings delegate authority over the earth. And as David said, yes, there will be the holding of account at the day of the Lord for both divine and human beings. And you can you can look just reread like Genesis, uh, uh, excuse me, Psalm eighty two, Psalm eighty three, and you'll see the divine and the human being judged in those two passages at the end. It's a very interesting passages there. Again, Psalm 82, Psalm 83. But David, we see a direct right here in the beginning, in the origins, that when God gives a command, when it's transgressed, he comes to deal with, with those things. And so there's there's boundaries being set here. Uh, God gives rule. He does give authority. He does call us to steward, but to steward rightly and to steward according to his command. And according to his word. So let, let's let's kind of bring things together. Any thoughts there, David? Yeah, I just I think that we'll uh we'll look at this more obviously next week, but um but this the the issues of transgressing the boundaries, you know, is is a big thing in these initial chapters that that what God sets for man to walk out in obedience, uh, man actually he doesn't. He transgresses that thing. He he oversteps that and and really rebels against that. And and then also later we'll see that these these other beings do that. And these are um, all of these you know these these three instances that we'll look at. Um, Genesis three, Genesis six, Genesis eleven. Yeah. Okay. We're gonna hopefully we'll get to all of it. Sure. <laughs> but. Uh, Maybe not this coming week. But. Yeah, yeah, the big, big topics. But it's like um, each of these is met with with God coming and and you know intervening and and bringing about judgment and discipline and limitation uh, to what's going on because there's this like overstepping beyond the boundaries that He set. Which, so. which is the, what this word transgress means. When we read transgression throughout the Torah, throughout the Psalms or the prophets, transgression is going beyond the boundary that God set. Is that is that your understanding? Yeah, I think I think it's it's related to that. Yeah, okay. somewhat. But yeah, I think that the you know 
we can like look at maybe even in future things about like sin and iniquity and transgression, sure. but but really just this overstepping of okay. what's going on and what the intentions are um, is is a vital theme that that is laid out in these three big sections of of these initial chapters over this whole span of almost two thousand yeah. years, you yeah. know, which is crazy. Um, so I think that. The, that kind of sets the stage for us as as we begin to unfold that for next week. So, well, Dave, it's been real, yeah. man. Very helpful, even for me. I just sitting here and and dialoguing. Uh, I think it's just great, and um, I just want to remind us we'll uh, see you guys soon. Back again Monday evening, but uh, alongside of this podcast, uh, you'll you'll see on the ArcNetwork dot org. Um, I want to encourage you to go there and pick as you are looking at that 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 podcast. You'll also see some additional uh, supplemental resources that we hope will help um, uh, come alongside of what we're discussing here today. God bless you guys, and uh, it's a joy serving with you.